You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. It's with that aim and hope every single Sunday that we open up the Word of God because it's in this Word that we find the hope of the gospel. Amen. So we are starting a, a new series for the season of Advent called The Most Wonderful Time of the Year. And our text this morning is going to be found in Isaiah chapter 9. So you can go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles. If you didn't bring one, we are going to have it on the screen. You may have an electronic device on you that has it. And we also have some hardback black ones in the seat pocket in front of you that you can snatch up and you can turn to Isaiah chapter 9 with us. It will be on page 537 in those pew Bibles. And we're going to read together. So if you're able and willing this morning, if you could stand with me. For the reading of God's word, we're going to read Isaiah chapter 9 together, starting in verse 6. So, Proverbs, let us hear the word of the Lord and respond in thanksgiving. Chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Merry Christmas to you. So excited that you're here. Um, if it is your first time, uh, my name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I want to say welcome. We're glad that you made us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we're going to be celebrating baptisms. If you're wondering what this is, this is not a random animal trough. This is for something special at the end of gathering, so we're really excited about that. Uh, we are beginning our Advent celebration, the most wonderful time of the year. I'm so glad that we get to celebrate it uh, together. Uh, I wanted to take a couple uh, moments here to, for two quick announcements before we jump into the text. Um, the first is to say a big thank you. Uh, Megan Gaston usually oversees uh, each year kind of the decoration process of what's gone on so you guys can kind of see. You know, this doesn't just happen. You know, Will Farrell doesn't come in the night and do all of this. She has worked diligently, and uh, there's a list of names here that she gave me. I just wanted to list them out and then show our appreciation for them, and if you see them, tell them a big thank you. Uh, but obviously, uh, Megan Coors Ty, so his name is on here too, but I wanted to mention, I don't know if it was willful, okay? I just got to be honest, but he did help. Uh, Linda Edwards, Nathan and Amy Warner, uh, Chelsea and Brendan Tanamachi, Jessica Rokel, Lauren Warner, Jenna Vaccaro, Andy Carter, Diane Van Deese, Jennifer Miller, Courtney Lease, Lauren Schreiber, Scott and Keela Mahan. We just want to say thank you so much. If you guys would give them a hand clap. <laughs> guys, I just want to say the girls were more represented here to our shame. Okay. Uh, second announcement, um, something that we have been trying to get kicked off for the better part of three years. COVID derailed that dramatically. Um, we'll be launching in January, and so the signups have opened, and that is Providence Road Academy, which is a, an equipping ministry, teaching ministry here at Providence Community Church that we've been trying to kick off for a while. Um, and I wish I had more time to talk to you about it, but if you're interested, we're going to be having holding classes on Sunday afternoons from 4 to 5.30, doing Bible teaching, and uh, we're going to be doing that this year, developing our core like foundational classes. And so the first uh, spring trimester will be understanding God's story, going from Genesis to Revelation, and uh, learning how the, all of the Bible points us to Jesus and God's redemptive story in and through him. 
The summer is going to be uh, core Christian convictions. What have all Christians believed of at all times throughout history, and what can we learn from that? And then in the fall, we're going to be doing a spiritual formation. How should Christians then live in light of the truths of Christ? What are the rhythms of the Christian life that we have been taught through the scriptures? So if you're interested in that, uh, I just want to encourage you to go see Lauren after gathering. She'll get you registered. Uh, we only, we have a limited space, and so the nine o'clock beat you guys to it. Okay, it's you know it. You slept in. It's your own fault. Um, but there are some spots available. You can go and sign up, and then also if it fills up, we'll just we'll have a wait list because you know how that thing goes. Sometimes something will happen. You know the kids have this going on. Can't do it for this trimester, and so we'll give you a call. So, okay, let me pray for us before we jump into the scriptures. Isaiah chapter number nine. We're going to read verses six or seven. But first, let me pray. Father, thank you. Um, Thank you that your word's timeless. You've presented us with your word and preserved it over thousands of years so that we could run to it as refuge, strength, life, and truth. We now ask as we celebrate this season that reminds us of the birth of your son, that Holy Spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts to shape us and mold us, give us the encouragement we need, give us the confidence that we need to follow you can give us the conviction we need to repent of sin where necessary. Give us the hope that we need to continue on each day. Give us the wisdom that we need to lead our lives in a way that pleases your heart. But most of all, God, we ask that you might incline our hearts to worship this morning, that we worship collectively in spirit and in truth for the glory of your name. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So yesterday I spent time doing what uh, a lot of you have probably already done. I'm behind the eight ball. I was on my roof putting up Christmas lights. I had to clean the gutters first, which is my favorite job. I look forward to it often. I write about it in my journals. Um, putting up Christmas lights, uh, my wife wanted to reconfigure the lights this year. So a little bit, few more, okay? And by a few, I mean she doubled the amount of lights. And then because of that, if you're uh, one of the guys in the room that's done this before, you reconfigure the lights, well, guess what you have to change? That's right, all the plastic clips need to be flipped in each light, which if you've never had the joys of the plastic clips, then you have been gifted by God. I had to flip all of those, and then there were little bulbs that were broken, and honestly, there was a moment, if you've ever been on the roof, like, the roof's not a lot of fun ever, I don't know why anybody thought that'd be fun, but when you're younger, it is more fun right? And I'm not saying it's great fun, but it's like, oh, this is kind of cool. I see. As you get older, it is less and less fun, more pain. I woke up this morning, just my body yelling at me about why I would do the things that I did. But you have to get in all contorted situations. There's ridges on your roof. You guys know what I'm talking about. It's terrible. There was a moment at the, you know, my house is an A-frame, so at the peak, my wife wanted a wreath to be put, put there. And I put that wreath up for her midweek. So I was done with my job. I washed my hands of it in the name of the Lord. And she told me that the nail was too high. It wasn't centered. Now, guys, you know how this goes. I thought it looked beautiful. It doesn't matter. My opinion doesn't matter. That's how this goes. So she puts a ribbon on it. She gets it back up. So I'm, there's a moment as I'm leaning over, endangering my life. It's almost dark because I've been up there all day, right? By the way, the lights aren't done. Guess what I'm doing after this? You got it. I'm leaning over, I'm putting the ribbon on and a little bit lower, right? And I'm thinking, why am I doing this? Like, why? Why am I doing this, you know? And you've probably had this moment too. You don't have to be uh, the husband on the roof uh, doing lights. Ladies, uh, I know now it's a little bit different with Amazon. You know, you just kind of shop like this. 
But there was a time where, you know, you'd be at the mall, you know, you get a fender bender in the parking lot. You're looking around, there's people everywhere. And you, why am I doing this? You know, why is Christmas have to be like this? And I think Christians in particular, this becomes muddy waters for us because we have even more reasons why we are like, why are we doing this, right? Like we, we have more of a reason to say how much is too much. The commercialization of Christmas, you know, for us to be a little bit, have an affront to that. Um, like, is it honoring to Jesus to put lights on my house, to put a tree in my house, um, to put a tree in my living room that, you know, it has to be a live tree just upping the likelihood that it will burn everything down before the end of the year, you know? Uh, should we really be going into credit card debt to get our child a third bike? You know? Uh, here's the biggest one, and this is one I want to focus on. Isn't Christmas based on a pagan holiday anyway? I'm a Christian, why do I have to do this, right? And here's what I want to say. You might be thinking, I'm, I'm on the Grinch path right here, but actually, it's the opposite. I want to make the case this morning that... You have permission, all of you who are like Megan, make everything look like Santa's workshop, to go even bigger. You have every reason to go even bigger with Christmas every year, and here's why. There is no way that you or I could ever overdo, make even a dent in just how glorious Christmas actually is in the spiritual. Nothing we could ever do could really communicate it to its fullness and so, as big as we would make it, it will never be as big as Christmas really was and is currently today. So I want to start by asking this question, where did holidays come from? Like, when did we start doing this, you know? Uh, if you go back in not just the Bible, but even in ancient history, the Bible, you, the first time that you start seeing festivals and feasts, God commands the children of Israel to take days off and celebrate his goodness. It looks something like this. On the day of Passover, you're going to, you know, you're going to take a whole day off. You're going to kill a lamb. And it's going to be in remembrance that I took you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and I brought you into my promised land. And this every year you will do this. It's a celebration. It's a festival. Now, Israel was not the only nation that had these festivals. All of them, each of them, though, in the beginning, centered around worship. The gods, the false gods of the Egyptians would be worshipped at their festivals. The false gods of the Babylonians would be worshipped at their festivals. Israel worshipped the one true God in its festivals, but nonetheless, holidays were centered around worship. Now, very quickly, that turned. Very quickly, political rulers, kings, and emperors realized that they could use holidays to leverage their authority over the populace. So very quickly... Emperors and rulers began to use holidays to create societal culture to either establish or to reestablish their dominance over their realm. And so holiday wars is what ensued. What you would see, for instance, like in the Roman world, is an emperor would come to power. He would then set a holiday. It would be maybe something like a, ma a massive military engagement that he had won. And now we're going to celebrate how I beat the, you fill in the blank, the Peloponnesians here, and we're going to celebrate once a year my glory when I rode back into Rome and told everyone that I, was, I had done this for them, right? We're going to celebrate. What usually would happen is one of two things. Either A, if there was a proper succession line, so like the son, let's say, took over after his father died of natural causes. By the way, that is so rare. Read the history books. Like almost no one dies sweetly as an emperor. They're always like the most terrible, awful political engagements are happening and they die of these weird awful things. Okay. 
So rarely what would happen in, the, in that case is the son would then double down on his dad's holidays because his dad's glory becomes his glory, right? And so he could say, I'm the son of this amazing guy who's my father, and so therefore we double down on the holiday. What mostly happens is that guy dies off in some peculiar circumstance. The next emperor steps in, and guess what he does? Banish this holiday, and I'm going to start my own. And he would create another one, and, this, and thus you have holiday wars. Now, what does this mean about Christmas? Christians have been asking the question, did we adopt a pagan holiday with December 25th? Because the truth is we have no idea if Jesus was born on December 25th. There's, there's no way of knowing that. And so what we know is that there was a Roman holiday around that same time. Now we need to look at the history of this in order to figure it out. So the Roman emperor Aurelian in the third century, he set forth a holiday, a high holy day in the Roman empire called Solon Victus. It's translated the unconquerable sun. And it was to worship the sun god Sol. And he did this on December 25th. All of the Roman Empire would worship the unconquerable sun. And this makes sense. It's a winter solstice festival. It makes sense because as you get closer and closer to winter, daylight gets slimmer and slimmer and slimmer and slimmer until a certain day, the winter solstice, when the sunlight begins to get greater and greater and greater and greater. And so if you worshiped the sun god, this would be a way of saying that even though it looks like the sun's losing, the sun will always come back and win, right? That's the idea. Now, The question is whether or not Christians decided they would just adopt this and bring it into their own, or if Christians actually were the reason that he installed this holiday in the first place. Because you got to remember, this is a few centuries in, and less than a century after this emperor, Constantine is going to make Christianity the nation-state religion because it's become so influential. They tried to snuff him out, they tried to persecute him, they tried to even kill them, and it ended up just making it even more uh, widespread. So some people will say that the Christians had started to, and by this time, they had already started to celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ. And many of the early church fathers believed that some of these men and women thought that Christ was conceived in March, and therefore they just went nine months to the 25th, and they had started to celebrate Christmas. And in response to that, the emperor Aurelian, seeing Christianity's influence, wanted to snuff that out. He wanted to bring the people of Rome back to a more pagan religion. And so he tried to combat it, a holiday war. Now, the others would say that the Christians didn't have December 25th. They already were celebrating the birth of Christ by this point, but they didn't do it on December 25th. And so the Christians co-opted, much like sometimes we'll do with Halloween today, right? It's like Halloween, you'll see that churches will jump on that, and then they'll actually celebrate Christ instead of, you know, weird spooky witches and things like that. So what they're saying is that that has been a theme for the Christians even all the way back then, that they would celebrate not the unconquerable sun in the heavens, the unconquerable son of God, And that they took that away from them and began to worship Christ on the unconquerable Sunday, right? Now, the question for us is, which one is it? And here's what I want to say. It doesn't matter which one it is, because just the history of it alone tells us that Christianity does not have its root, or I'm sorry, Christmas does not have its roots in paganism, but the Christians were already worshiping Christ and celebrating his birth all the way back at the same time that it was originally instituted. In the 11th century, it's the first time we see the word Christmas used. It's a bishop has died, and it's kind of like an obituary in the paper. The bishop died two days before Christmas, it says. So already in the 11th century, they've called it Christmas. And now most of the things that you and I see and we consider Christmassy, okay, snow falling, silver bells, this is like a couple centuries old, even less, okay, most of the things that we see. But Christmas itself is not a couple centuries old. It's very old. 
from the earliest days, the early church not only would celebrate Easter, which we celebrate every single Sunday, but they would celebrate the birth of Christ. Now, the question on the heels of that is why make a big deal about it, though? The reason we make a big deal about it is because Christmas is not only the culmination of the long-awaited prophecies of the Old Testament, but it's the very moment that God chose to wrap himself in human flesh and then enter human history to settle the dispute that had been raging since the beginning. And that dispute is this, who's in charge? Christ entering into human history as a child, it's God saying, now all the squabbles will cease, the king has arrived. And I want to spend some time talking about how we know that from the text. So I'll say this and then we'll jump into chapter nine. Celebrating Christmas is an act of war against all of the powers and authorities that would challenge the lordship of Jesus Christ. The the King Herod knew this. Caesar Augustus knew this. The early church knew this. The Roman emperors like Aurelian knew this. Celebrating Christmas is much bigger than just trees and gifts. When Christians celebrate Christmas, we are declaring our allegiance to the one true king, and that means over and against anything else. And not everyone's crazy about that idea. Okay, so let's read, and here's what I want to do. I want to give you three reasons that you can do it big. Sorry ahead of time, guys, if you're you're on the roof later. Three good reasons you can do it big this year for Christmas and not feel ashamed. Number one, Christmas is a familial event. Christmas is a familial event. Isaiah chapter 9, this is how it starts. For to us... A child is born. To us, a son is given. I love that Isaiah speaks the prophecy here, and the starting line is that Jesus comes to us as a child and as a son. The God of all things chose to enter human history as a member of an earthly family. And that's not something small, because can we agree that he could have done anything he wanted? If God's going to invade the earth and lay his claim to the rest of the earth and all of its darkness. He could have done it as a general. He could have done it as God that he is, just showing his authority. Instead, he comes as a child, as a member of an earthly family with an actual mom and dad. Why? God sent his son into the world because family was God's first and initial institution since creation. Family is God's idea, and he has not changed his mind. Don't think it's an American idea for Christmas to be a time when everybody comes and sees their family once a year, gets around the fire, sings, eats until they're glutted, falls to sleep or argues, right? Don't think that's an American idea. Family becoming central to Christmas was not coincidental. It was inevitable because Christ was born into a family because God instituted the family first. Jesus enters the world with an announcement. The Lord will be Lord of the house. Or another way to put it is this. If the Lord will be Lord of all, and he is, he must first be Lord of the house. He must first be Lord of the heart. Christmas is taught and revered best when it's done so in the context of family, both the family that you are around the dinner table with. And check this out. Later on in gathering, when we get around this marriage supper of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, and we take the Lord's Supper, it's the family of God getting together. That's why there's such a reverence with both the table of the Lord and the table of your home, worshiping and celebrating the Christ. Okay. Now, what should we apply to that? I think we need to lean into that, not away from that. We need to lean into that together at Christmas, not away from it. Number two, Christmas is a political event. Christmas is a political event. Jesus is the Lord of the nations. Okay, now before I lose you all, this means something that you probably aren't thinking now. What do I mean? 
Let's listen to chapter, or verse number six, second half, and verse seven. It says, And the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The birth of Jesus Christ was, and still is, a political earthquake. The true king has arrived at the crux of human history, born into the greatest empire the world has ever seen, under the tyrannical rule of a false demigod named Caesar Augustus, and he announces that his kingship will last forever. Isaiah lays this out plainly for us, telling us that the government itself will be upon his shoulders. His government will increase and have no end. He will sit upon a throne, and it's not just any throne, it's the throne of King David himself. And he will reign over this kingdom forever and ever. At its very heart, the story of Christmas is the astounding announcement that the, the standing guard of the world has changed. The king has arrived. It's an announcement to all of the Roman occupiers, to all of the peoples of the earth, that no longer could they assert their dominance and authority because Christ is the king. Now, you might be thinking, I'm crazy about this, but let's use some examples. The scriptures say in the book of Luke that at the time of Christ's birth, Caesar Augustus put out a census. He was the ruler of the day. Well, who is Caesar Augustus? He's the very, arguably the very first emperor that Rome ever saw. Julius Caesar was his adopted father. Julius Caesar, of course, is the famous, he has the famous uh, story of him that he was killed by Brutus and Cassius. And so he, he kind of exercised the rule of emperor, but he did not have that title from the Senate. Caesar Augustus was the first to have that title. And Caesar Augustus considered himself the son of Julius Caesar. Now, that title, Augustus, was not his when he first took over. It was given to him by the Senate. And here's what it means, it comes from the Latin root word agir, and it means to increase. So the word Augustus, the title given to Caesar Augustus, literally means that he would increase. He, his majesty would increase, the illustrious one. So it's not coincidental that Jesus' prophes, prophecies from hundreds of years before would say that the increase of Christ's government would have no end. And then Caesar Augustus would be given the title of the increasing one. Augustus also was known to have the title, and this is what they would call him towards the end of his life, Imperator Caesar D.V. Filius. It means Commander Caesar, the son of the divine one. Now, this is that very rare moment I was talking about where Julius Caesar was so revered, he was killed early, and then they had the triumvirate, which Caesar Augustus comes out of as the, as the ruler. And Caesar Augustus, listen to me, his birth father was not Julius Caesar, but he considered himself his adopted son, and therefore he says, that's my dad. He, he threw away his, his actual earthly father and said, Julius Caesar was my dad. And here's why, because the Roman people saw Julius Caesar as a god. And so from then on, the coins that, that Caesar Augustus had would actually say on them, the son of God and it would have Caesar Augustus' face on it. Now think of this, when Jesus is grabbing the coin and says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God's, it's tongue-in-cheek, Christ saying, I'm the real son of God. He can tax as much as he wants. All is mine. <laughs> now, Christ being born at the time of an emperor and a ruler who claimed divine sonship is not coincidental. 
Okay, but there's another one, King Herod. King Herod was ruling in Judea at the time. Now, I wish I had a lot of time to talk about King Herod, but I don't. King Herod is a very intriguing character in the Old Testament, but also in history. Most people hated this guy. I mean, even historians, like there's very few. I couldn't find one source that talked well about him. A brutal guy and a political savage. He would betray you in a moment. He had real political savvy, but, but so much so that towards the end of his life, he is so uh, brazenly, uh, what's the word, anxious about losing his throne that he would even kill his own sons off. The, like one of the historians said, it's better to be a pig than be a son of Herod because Herod would think you're going to take his throne if he'd just kill his own kids. I mean, he's terrified. But he was appointed as the ruler of Judea or in the kingship over the Jewish province um, by Julius Caesar himself before Augustus. So he cozies up to Augustus, he retains his title as the king, and then as a brutal man, he lives his life being paranoid. The the birth of Christ comes right at the tail end of Herod's life. Here's what the Bible says. I want to read this to you because it's meaningful. This is Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read the first three verses. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, listen to this, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Why is he troubled? The reason he's troubled is because the Roman Senate had given Herod the unique title, the only, one of the only ones underneath Caesar. They gave him the title, the king of the Jews. So then wise men show up to King Herod's palace and say, hey, we're here to worship the king of the Jews. He's like, it's me. They're like, no, 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 it's another guy. And he freaks out. Already a paranoid man, what he does is he sends the wise men to basically try to uncover Jesus' place so that he could kill them. We know the story, right? The wise men end up fearing the baby in the manger and his God more than they fear Herod, and they end up going by another way. Well, how does Herod respond? He kills every, every male child two years old and younger in the province, in the area. It's called the Massacre of the Innocents, and it's very infamous. Now, why do I say all of that? Why do I tell you all of that history? Being a Christian, being born again, is not Christians joining Jesus' campaign team. When we preach the gospel, when we evangelize, we're not going door-to-door, raising money, registering voters, hoping to get Jesus elected into your heart. Okay? No, what we're doing is we are announcing that Jesus is the king right now. That is the case. It has been the case since the manger in Bethlehem. Christ entered the world saying, I'm the king now. And that's why it was so threatening to the powers that be. He didn't come and say, I will be the king. No, he said, I am the king. And that's a threat. The wise men didn't say, I want to see the one who will later be or might be or hopefully will be king of the Jews. We want to visit the king of the Jews, the one who's in the manger. Jesus already is the king. And we we celebrate Bethlehem and Christmas loudly and publicly because it is a reminder to earthly authorities who Jesus is, what he already accomplished, the authority he already possesses. Not future tense, not past tense, current tense. Christ is the king now. Now, what does that mean for us? Christians, we celebrate Christmas big because it's like an announcement, a message to everyone in high places, every king, every authority in high places, that no party or political movement will ever hold our supreme allegiance because Christ alone is the king. And only he can hold our true allegiance. If you ever wondered why, even with Paul, 
the persecution of the Christians, when it, when it met its apex, it ultimately met its apex in one central focus. Will you bow before Caesar or, or will you say that Christ is king? That was the ultimate. And this is the story of Christmas. It's an announcement to anyone who might be listening. Christ is the king. Okay, last piece. Number three, your third reason. Christmas is a cosmic event. Christmas is a cosmic event. Jesus is the Lord of all realms, the entire universe, seen and unseen. Now, this one's kind of hidden. It's not as out front, but let's look at the text itself, and let's see the language here used by Isaiah. Isaiah says that Jesus' name will be Mighty God and Everlasting Father. Now, these are spiritual terms, not just physical governments. God rules on a throne over all of the universe in a spiritual kingdom that includes the physical realm, but ultimately it's over the physical realm. And Christ will hold that title. The everlasting father means that he has no beginning and has no end. That's spiritual language. How about this one? The increase of his government will what? Have no end. There's no end to it. It is immortal. From this time forth and forevermore. Jesus' kingdom is forever. All of the human political squabbles that you and I see every single day, they take place before our eyes every single day, they can often blind us from the very true spiritual realities that occur just beyond the five senses. Christ's story of his birth gives us a picture that a cosmic battle is always being waged behind what you see with your eyes. There's something else playing out. Let me give you examples. Mary and Joseph have to travel to Bethlehem. It's essential for the Old Testament prophecy. How will they get there, though? Because they're Nazarites, and it's not like you and I where we can just get in a car, okay? They're not just hopping on the camel and going to Bethlehem, you know, for Wendy's. It's a long travel, arduous, and Mary's pregnant. How are they going to do it? How are they going to get there? And they don't even know. Well, they get there because a census is commanded by the ruler of the known world at the time, saying that they have to go back to their original hometown in order to register to pay taxes. Now, who really did that? Was it Caesar or was it God's hand? Yes. <laughs> How about Herod? Why, who, what made Herod send the wise men to Jesus? Was it his own ego, his own fears? Of course, but it was also potentially spiritually dark forces that wanted to see the Christ child ended. Well, read Revelation 12 when you get home. Maybe so. What made the wise men go away in secret? Was it a dream? Well, that's what the Bible says, but who sent the dream? Herod massacres the innocents. Why? What's the result? Well, Jesus and his family flee, and they flee to where? They flee to Egypt. Is that a bad thing? No, it's so that the prophecy might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. And at 12 years old, he comes back. Now, the most obvious dead giveaway of the cosmic reality, the cosmic nature of Jesus' birth is two things. Number one, a star rests over his birthplace to lead the wise men, so God's wielding the whole universe. And number two, most emphatically, angels show up to herald the birth of Christ to shepherds in a field. They burst through the silent night and they sing about Christ being the one who is good news of great joy for all people. The demons are put on notice in this moment. The king is here. The angels announce it. You see, Christmas was not only an announcement to all of the earthly powers like Caesar and Herod. Christmas was an announcement to all the demonic powers in heavenly places that their days of power and authority on this earth that God had permitted for them to exercise were numbered. And soon Jesus would put all of them under his feet 
Satan and all of his minions would be cast down forever. And they knew this. Have you ever wondered why in Jesus' ministry there's just so much demonic activity? Ever think about that? It's like every time Jesus comes into a town, a demon shows up. He feeds 5,000 people, demon shows up. He raises someone from the dead, demon shows up. He goes to an island and he's walking and here comes this demon that no one else would even go around running up to Jesus. Why is that? Well, it's pretty simple. The cosmic and spiritual powers and principalities all understood what was happening. Jesus showing up meant that they had lost. Jesus showing up meant that they didn't have the authority they used to have. Jesus showing up meant that he would wield the power that God had given him as he saw fit. They all knew this, and therefore they would rush to him. You ever wondered why the demons ask for his mercy? (laughs) Please just throw us into the pigs. Don't do away with us. See, sometimes I think that the demons knew more about what Christmas was really about than we do. Christians, we celebrate Christmas as an act of spiritual warfare. It's a direct affront to the God of this world. When we celebrate Christmas, we make the declaration, Christ is king in the face of the enemy who wants to believe he still has reign. Very few things are as openly powerful as celebrating Christmas by by Christians who not only partake in the cultural ideas of Christmas traditions, but they understand and communicate the depth of Christmas and celebrate it with their whole hearts. Why is this? Because Christmas ultimately is about worship. Christmas is about worship. Remember how I started? All holidays started with worship. Christmas is ultimately about worship. I'm really glad we're doing baptisms this morning because like Christmas, baptisms are the announcement to all the powers that be that Christ is the king. Christ has won. Jesus is Lord. My prayer for us this Advent season is that we would reclaim Christmas as the worship season that it has always been. That it will be the season that we worship Christ the king. Now I want to end with a, this is a quote from a sermon by Charles Haddon Spurgeon on Christmas Eve. Charles Spurgeon was not a big fan of the commercialization of Christmas. He's kind of a Puritan at heart. You'll catch that in his quote here. But even he had to admit that the Christians should celebrate Christmas big, and he tells you why in this excerpt. I want to read this to you guys, and then I'll pray for us. He says this, Now a happy Christmas to you all, and it will be a happy Christmas if you have God with you. I shall say nothing today against the festivities on this great birthday of Christ. So clearly he had done it before. We will tomorrow think of Christ's birthday. We shall be obliged to do it, I'm sure. However sturdily we may hold to our rough Puritanism. (laughs) And so let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Do not feast as if you wish to keep the festival of Bacchus, the demon. Do not live tomorrow as if you adored some heathen divinity. Feast, Christians, feast. You have a right to feast. Go to the house of feasting tomorrow. Celebrate your Savior's birth. Do not be ashamed and be glad. You have a right to be happy. Solomon says, go thy way. Eat thy bread with joy. Drink thy wine with a merry heart. For God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments always be white and let thy head lack no ointment. Here's one of my favorite lines from the quote here. Religion was never designed to make you pleasure less. Recollect that your master ate butter and honey. Go your way, rejoice tomorrow. But in your feasting, think of the man in Bethlehem. Let him have a place in your hearts 
Give him the glory. Think of the virgin that conceived him, yes, but think most of all the man born, the child given. I finish by saying a happy Christmas to you all. You'll stand to your feet. I'll pray for us. Father, a happy Christmas indeed. Today, we stand in awe because if we've had the worst week we could ever imagine, the truth of Christ's coming into the world to carry out your redemptive purposes is true and no evil work of darkness, no earthly ruler of pride could ever take it away. What's true for us now is so much greater than what any circumstance could ever try to preach to us tomorrow. Thank you that we can be happy today even if our circumstances are really working to make us gloomy. Thank you, Jesus, that our future is secure. Our eternity is in you. Our hope is in your eyes, your hands, your work, your purpose. Holy Spirit, we pray now, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask it in Jesus' good name.